What do you do when your newborn daughter is facing a life or death heart transplant? Does it turn you to faith? It sure did for Miguel Solis and his wife, and he's going to be talking about that on Good God. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm George Mason, host of Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. We welcome you to this episode, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Miguel Solis. Miguel, glad to have you with us. Glad to be here, George. Thank you. Miguel is a trustee for the Dallas Independent School District, and he is also the president of the Latino Center for Leadership Development, uh, among other ways in which uh, you are involved in the community. And Miguel, it's just a delight for us to be able to have this conversation. I'm glad to have it with you. Thank you. Well, we've enjoyed these Good God uh, times with uh, other people in our community. Uh, but your story of, um, uh, that, that I think has captured a lot of people's imagination during uh, the last months has to do with the birth of your daughter, uh, Olivia. And last spring, uh, she was born. And uh, we'll let you begin to tell that story because immediately after birth, uh, the, the crisis happened and you discovered it. So tell, tell more about that. Absolutely. Well, again, I appreciate the, the invitation to have this discussion with you. Um, so, you know, my wife and I for some time um, have been thinking about starting our family. And the question was, you know, what was the perfect time uh, to be able to do that? And so I had, you know, been involved as a trustee for some time, I'd established the Latino Center for Leadership Development and felt like that was going in the right direction. My wife had graduated from medical school, began and finished her residency in Oklahoma City, had moved back to Dallas and uh, had started working for a private practice. And so, um, you know, we've, our entire lives, we'd been building to this moment and we were very excited for it. And uh, we found out uh, that we were pregnant and the pregnancy was, for the most part, fairly smooth. Mm -hmm. uh, until about the tail end, my wife had been, um, uh, she had gestational diabetes. Yes. And so we had to monitor that for the past, for the mm -hmm. last two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, we went into the hospital on February the 21st. Um, everything was going well. Um, the February 22nd came and Olivia entered the world. And almost immediately into her entering the world, we noticed that there were some things going on. She had a very low blood sugar, um, and we knew that we needed to try to regulate that. And so pretty soon after birth, uh, Olivia was willed into the neonatal intensive care unit. It was there that we realized that there was something going on with her heart. Yes. Uh, and so about two days after she had been in the NICU, uh, we did a sonogram of her heart, an echocardiogram. And about an hour after that echocardiogram, I remember it as if it was just yesterday, it was on a Saturday, the cardiologist came in and he said, uh, Miguel, I need to have a, a discussion with you and your wife. At the time, my wife was still recovering from mm -hmm. um, the birth. And I said, well, doctor, you can just have that discussion with me. We don't have to have it with my wife. And he said, no, no. <laughs> we need to have it with both of you. Um, and the news was delivered, news that no new parent, especially the parent of a first child, wants to hear. And that was that your daughter has a congenital heart defect, aortic valve stenosis to be specific, that will require pretty immediate and invasive uh, procedures. Right. And so my wife and I prepared ourselves for this. And six days in, um, there was a catheter process that was done. 
that was supposed to balloon open her aortic valve. Um, it did that successfully, but unfortunately, blood rushed back into her left mm -hmm. ventricle. Right. It sent her heart into shock, mm -hmm. which led to 63 minutes of CPR on a six-year-old baby while at the same time doing surgery in her carotid artery to hook her up to oh, life support. Yes. Um, and, you know, the story continues from the there. The bruising, right everything that came from that. And, and then I understand that you had her transferred to Children's Medical Center. You had you'd given birth at Medical City Dallas. Correct. Right? And, and then, remarkably, they were able to do a valve transplant, uh, which is quite a, an extraordinary thing. It became clear to us at Medical City that we were down to just a few options. Mm -hmm. um, by day eight of her life, mm -hmm. we, uh, we knew that she was going to have to have some sort of open heart surgery, mm -hmm. whether it was going to be the valve replacement or a heart transplant was up for debate. But mm -hmm. we knew that we, none of those things could happen at Medical City. We needed to transport her while on life support mm -hmm. to Children's Medical Center. Um, before we did that though, I knew that there the future was not promised. Yes. And so on day seven of her life, her, her one-week birthday, we went ahead and baptized her. Yes, I, I, I love that story. And I think, let's let's stop with that for just a moment. You, you called your friend Tony. I Tony did. Tony Cleo. Good friend. Who, who's just, uh, he is one of the most well-connected people we all know in Dallas. And what a, what a great spirit he is. And he was able to hook you up with uh, the Catholic chaplain at SMU. Yeah, uh, who actually he, he went straight to the top. So I called Tony well, at about 3 a.m. By 4 a.m. he'd had the bishop on the well, phone. Well, the bishop answers <laughs> Tony's calls, I'm sure, yeah. unlike the rest of us, yeah. you know. Well, that's that's wonderful. So, uh, so what, what did the baptism of your daughter in that moment mean to you and Jacqueline? Well, it meant the world. Um, yeah. So we were not certain at the time that she had been baptized, that she would even make it another day. Yes. I mean, that's sort of the right. the dim nature of what we the decisions that we were having to make. Yes. And so, you know, I woke up. It was about 3 a.m. after uh -huh. the, the night after she'd had the CPR. She was on life support, and I just said, you know what? If this is her last day on earth, then I want to make sure that we've done everything that we need yes. to ready her. Right. Um, to meet the Lord, yes, um, and and to do it with everything that we could have possibly prepared her to do that with, right. and so you know, obviously, baptism for me uh, as a, as a Catholic is, and yes. my wife as a Catholic is essential. Yes, and so it's funny though because as after we knew that the baptism was going to happen, in a side conversation, my wife and I had talked about faith and what those seven days had done in many ways to restore mm -hmm. our faith. Yes. And, you know, I'd mentioned to my wife, you know, uh, just, an, just a throwaway comment, man, I'd love to just give Olivia one more name. We named her Olivia Renee Solis at birth. Mm -hmm. I'd love to give her one more name. And I said, well, what would that be? And I said, I'd love to give her the name Faith mm -hmm. uh, because of what she's done for us yes. and, and renewed our faith. Side, so it was just a throwaway comment. Well, fast forward six or seven hours later, and uh, Father Arthur, the chaplain mm -hmm. from SMU, came in. Uh, we readied everybody. Uh, we had all the stuff ready for the, for the baptismal ceremony. And during the ceremony, Father Arthur turns to me and he says, what name do you give your daughter? And my wife and I looked and we said, well, her name is Olivia Renee Solis, so that, that's her name that we give her. And he said, no, you don't have an extra name, a baptismal name that you'd like to give her. And my wife and I looked at each other and we said, I mean, that's God. Yeah. And so we said, yes, we want to name her Faith. Mm 
Wonderful. And so her name is Olivia Renee Faith Solis. Beautiful. So you talked about how during that seven days, uh, it really was a, a time of examining your own faith and renewing it in, in certain ways. Crisis has a way of doing that for us. And when, yeah. it, when we're existentially faced with life and death sorts of things. Uh, so uh, how has that stayed with you from yeah. that time? Well, so, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. I feel like most of us really experience or choose to experience faith in existential circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the real test of faith mm -hmm. is what you do and what your relationship with God is yes. when you're not in a crisis moment. Yes. And right. I'd forgotten that. I right. truly had. I, I like to say um, that the experience with Olivia has been in some ways, though it's not completely uh, an apples to apples analogy, my Saul of Tarsus moment. Right. Uh, right. The Apostle Paul's conversion. Um, it was a striking moment in your life when everything stopped, when you felt like you had an encounter with God that changed you. For, for the better right. and for eternity. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I went to Catholic school. Right. I grew up in faith. I was an altar boy at yeah, the, right. by the age of 10 or 11 years old. Right. So I, it's not that I have not understood the importance of faith, right. but over the course of time, um, you know, when you're in all of these professional and public and political situations, you of start course. to lose sight of the importance that faith and the role that faith has mm -hmm. uh, in one's life or the role and the importance that it should have. Yes. So it truly was um, a Saul of Tarsus moment for me, and it's one that has changed me for the better. Now the question is, how will I continue to act on that faith and right. to continue to remain sustained by that faith. Exactly, and I think this is one of the great challenges for all of us, right? I think from time to time in our faith journey, we have these spikes. Yeah. We have these key moments that happen to us, and then the question is, how do we sustain them, right? Absolutely. And, and, I, and I don't think faith ever goes on a straight line, right? Oh. It's, it, it, it's always going to be something like this, but uh, no one would want to say, and if they did, I would challenge them, that God gave this circumstance to you specifically in order to wake you to faith. But there, there is that, that passage in the Bible that says that in all things God works for good uh, to those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. And so we can find even in these tragic circumstances, these testing moments of life and death, that God can really awaken us yep. uh, to what's fundamentally important. Right? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, in reflecting again back on the story of, of Paul, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a certain, there was a, there was a, a sentence within that story in the lead up to Paul's traveling to Damascus yes. that, that really, I think, resonates with me moving forward. And that was that Paul had been receiving um, sort of these, these kicks uh -huh. to try to tell him to follow the Lord. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, he would, re he, he was, pushing back against those things. Right. And so the Lord says... Kicking against the pricks was the kicking phrase. Kicking against in, the in, pricks, in, kicking in, against yeah. the goats. Yes, right. Um, that's how I think moving forward, yes. I need to continue to um, you know, rem remind myself about the faith that there are going to be things that are going to come up in life right. that are going to really tell me, you know, be faithful 
or act on your faith at this point. Good, good. And I have to really listen to that. And then good. I would encourage you know the viewers to do the same thing. So much is about staying awake to life, isn't it? And realizing that God is trying to communicate with us yeah. through all sorts of things. And I've got a great reminder. I mean, I yeah. get a chance to look at a beautiful baby. And a little okay, so let's go back to Olivia. Absolutely. Because the surgery then takes place and it is successful. And your little girl is coming along. So when we, when we moved her to Children's Medical Center, we were down to two options, uh, an open heart surgery to change mm -hmm. the valve or an open heart surgery to do a heart transplant. Yes. Well, we wanted to give her old heart one last chance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we said, let's try the valve replacement. It was the doctors had not tried something like this on a child her age that was on life support. Mm -hmm. um, they said, you know, it could be a 30 to 40% fatality risk, mm -hmm. um, but this is probably her best chance to give her, her old heart an opportunity. She survived it. It was a nine hour open heart surgery. This little girl was two months old. Um, three months into this, the day before we were going to take her home, she had a crisis mm. where she basically turned purple and was unable to breathe. And it was because her old heart basically had just said, even though you gave me this new valve, I just, I'm not strong enough. Mm -hmm. So at that point we knew mm -hmm. she needs a heart transplant and mm -hmm. it was our only option. Yes. Um, luckily, uh, we received a call not too long after mm -hmm. that they had identified a heart. Mm -hmm. um, and on her three month birthday at 12.07 a.m., after a second open heart surgery, her new heart uh, began to beat. And she's been on a, record, a road to recovery ever since, and she's been home now for a little over one month. And, and it looks like her body is accepting her heart. But one other thing that uh, you know, I, I cannot forget, and another thing about faith that will, all, I think, really push me to continue to be sustained and re remember my faith and act on it, is the fact that there's another family out there somewhere yes. who had to make a difficult decision, mm -hmm. but a selfless decision to breathe life yes. into my daughter. Yes at probably their most difficult day of life, yes. they chose to think of someone else. And uh, the power of, of organ donations is something that's not lost on me. Good. The importance of being a donor, um, but the fact that there are, you know, there are families out there that need prayers because things didn't work out uh, for them. Well, Miguel, uh, that's, it's a beautiful gift of life that people give through organ donation. Uh, and it, it's, it's a wonderful way to demonstrate faith, actually, and cooperate with God, isn't it? But I, do, I also want you to know, thank you for telling this story. Um, I know it's tender for you still, uh, but all of Dallas, I think, held its breath, and we're offering prayers for you and Jacqueline and Olivia during that period of time. And you were so open with everyone, and it was, um, it was a beautiful thing for us all to be able to walk that, even if we didn't know you. Uh, God knew through the Spirit that we were all pulling for you. And uh, we're going to take a brief break now. And when we come back, we want to keep talking about children, not just yours, but uh, the work you do in DISD. So thank you for this beginning. We'll be right back. Thank you. Okay. Children's Medical Center's mission is to make life better for children. Here are some of their heroes. They had their lives saved by children's and then helped others by giving back. There are so many more, and you can help them by supporting the fundraising efforts of Children's Medical Center Foundation. 
Just go to children's.com and click on I Choose Children's. Be a hero yourself. We're back with Miguel Solis. Miguel, you are the uh, trustee for District 8 in DISD. And we were just talking about Olivia, your daughter, and uh, you know, education's been such an important part of your life, and uh, your wife uh, is, is a medical doctor. You have a master's of education from mm -hmm. Harvard University. You're now serving uh, in the Dallas schools uh, on the school board. And, and, and I know you're gonna want Olivia to have a wonderful education as she grows up, but part of that is already something that you're passionate about. Uh, what led you to begin with to run for the school board? Yeah, there are a lot of different factors. Um, I think that one of the biggest things is the experience of my grandmother and grandfather yes. who came from Mexico and mm -hmm. raised uh, my dad here in mm -hmm. America um, and his experience with education, uh, really coming from nothing and mm -hmm. through the power of education, uh, having the opportunity to make something of himself and then just literally one generation removed from my grandparents, his son, then going to be able to study at one of the most prestigious universities in, in the world. This is America. I mean, it's America, but it's also the power of education. Yes. And what can happen to you if you've got the knowledge required yes. to make something of yourself right. um, in this country. So that that's an element of mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I decided to run to try to mm -hmm allow my, um, to, to, to make sure that Miguel Solis is not a unique thing. I that, love that, that yes. many Miguel Solises across our community Wonderful. have that opportunity. Another reason is because I was a public school teacher. Yes. Uh, my first real job out of college was uh, working as a public school teacher at Marsh Middle School in the Dallas Independent School District. Prior to that, I'd worked on, a, on uh, President Obama's presidential campaign mm -hmm. in 2008. But my first real job, and the hardest job that I've ever had, was being a public school teacher. Right. And we were able to do some tremendous things in, uh, in the classroom with the children that I was in charge of. And so I wanted to try to figure out a way to scale yes. what was happening in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I studied at Harvard and got mm -hmm. a degree in education policy and management. And so I was sort of preparing myself to make big decisions for school systems. Right. And by chance had the opportunity to come back to Dallas ISD work as a special assistant to the mm -hmm. new superintendent at the mm -hmm. time, Mike Miles, mm -hmm. saw you know, the dynamics of the school board. There was a seat that opened up because mm -hmm. uh, then school board member Adam Madrano ran mm -hmm. for city council and was right. successful. And at the age of 27, uh, despite people telling me I was crazy for wanting to do it, I ran for the school board and was successful and um, have been serving ever since. Now, DISD is uh, in, in my nearly 30 years in Dallas, uh, a, a, a story that is told or has been told most of the time as a typical urban school district in America that mm -hmm. is challenged, mm -hmm. predominantly challenged by uh, the, the fact that um, we, we have um, a disproportionate number of uh, economically challenged uh, students uh, in, in our schools and there are enormous social pressures and those sorts of things that mitigate against uh, uh, high achievement in learning. But DISD has been incredibly creative and has been adapting in beautiful ways and the, the, the extraordinary story that is just beginning I think really to hit people is, is the 
astonishing progress being made. The, the, the number of schools that are, are being given high marks now and being taken off the, uh, the lists of the watch lists of uh, low performing. And so I, I know that's not one thing, it's many things, but what would you say to the public uh, to, to give them uh, some encouragement about where DISD is headed? Well, let me go back for a second and just um, reiterate what you said about uh, the challenge of large urban school systems across mm -hmm. the United States. I right. mean, the, the challenges that Dallas ISD faces are not unique no. to the city That's of right. Dallas. Right. Um, and in many ways, those challenges are rooted in race, mm -hmm. they are rooted in socioeconomic policies or the lack thereof right. uh, from a historical standpoint. Right. Um, and, and so those phenomena have sort of manifest themselves into the perpetuation of things like achievement gaps yes. between students that are of you know, low income or mm -hmm. minority students mm -hmm. um, and those of means. Yes. So when I started as a school teacher in DISD, I knew what I was walking into. I knew the situation. But the thing that I also realized was, even through my own story, what can happen if you give a kid hope yes. and the resources mm -hmm. and the, the human talent, human capital talent to match that hope yes. so that it's not a hollow or a false hope. Mm -hmm. So I knew the possibilities of what could happen. Um, and then when I got on the board, it, it really was at the sort of a watershed moment when a community coalition uh, was able to identify uh, a superintendent to come in and put in place revolutionary reformations. Yes. Things along the lines of creating systems to truly identify our best educators, right. to reward those educators, mm -hmm. to support those educators, right. and then to place those educators in schools that for generations had needed those type of educators right. the most but didn't receive them. Yes. Things like the expansion of high quality early childhood education opportunities yes. for kids across the city who were not getting those opportunities yes. um, prior to some of these re these reformations. Things like inserting social emotional standards mm -hmm. um, into our curriculum so that we're not just focused on testing kids but on truly creating mm -hmm. um, you know, citizens that are college and career ready to be able to make it in the 21st century. Yes. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. These were not easy changes. No. Um, they were met with some resistance. Um, and in some ways that resistance was purely because of a mistrust yes. um, based on the, some of the historical Plenty things of that I've talked to you about. Sure, right. But those things now, those changes mm -hmm. are beginning to produce a set of results that aren't just eye-opening to the Dallas community who hasn't really had reason to believe in the public schools. They're eye-opening to the nation. Yes. And there are more and more districts that are wanting to replicate the work that's being done in the Dallas ISD. And that's great because mm -hmm. that ultimately means kids, more and more kids are getting the education that they need. So what are the headwinds you think we're facing in Dallas to continuing this uh, trend and creating a flywheel effect that really um, actually draws people's attention back to Dallas? I mean, we had the centrifugal force of, of uh, 
segregation by choice, let's yeah. be honest, right? Mm -hmm. After uh, after desegregation, uh, we had um, the flight to the suburbs and uh, we've left DISD uh, racially. It's uh, only 5% white now about, is mm -hmm. that correct? That's correct. And, and uh, we, so we have a, a, an extraordinary racial divide as a kind of donut hole uh, around around Dallas, but uh, but there is, there, there, with all this progress, you would think that there is a growing desire on some people's part, and with school choice within the district mm -hmm. and all of that, there's, there's now a lot of folks paying attention, uh, considering moving back from the suburbs into Dallas because of this. What are the headwinds, though, we're facing, even as this progress? Well, I mean, so we are seeing the re-urbanization Yes. As some some uh, academics, mm -hmm. I think, are kind of uh, describing it, where you know people who either fled mm -hmm. and now are sort of getting close to retirement age, yes, uh, are coming back to the core, yes. wanting to live uh, an urban life. Right. Uh, millennials, yes. people like myself, mm -hmm. are coming to Dallas for opportunity. Right. Um, and then, and, and just, you know, others are, are coming to the city because they want a different life. They want something that's different than the suburbs. Yeah. And with that, we're actually creating what, what um, at least uh, Richard Florida, who's a, another uh, academic and, and urbanologist, has described as the new urban crisis, mm -hmm. where those that had been left behind mm -hmm. um, are now faced with new development yes. and the effects of new development, such mm -hmm. as gentrification, yes, um, and how do we ensure that we are not basically creating a new cycle of flight where we are pushing out those right. who this city has belonged to for generations? So this actually raises uh, the point about the integration of policy in Dallas. We have had this sense of the division of uh, city council over here, county commission, and DISD, and let's make sure that we keep these as discrete entities, because you have your business, we have yeah. our business, but what you're talking about is just how important affordable housing is, for example. Uh, teachers and people who are working in our public schools who do not make um, high salaries, but who do it because of their passion, their sense of calling, they need to be able to live close enough that their families can go to those schools and, yeah. and all of that. So it, it's not any longer possible for us to say, you stay over here and we'll stay over here. There's, there, there's an agenda that has to be common, right? Yeah. It's never been possible. Yeah. We have just, whether it's through apathy or other forces, decided to make that the reality okay. for far too long. Yes. And so the question now is, as we begin to see this new urban crisis unfold, mm -hmm. what are today's policymakers going to do yes. to operate in a new way? And you're, yes. you, you're absolutely right. The, mm -hmm. the intersection of policy amongst um, at least municipal institutions have got to be better aligned yes. to ensure that we create the type of community that deconstructs the tale of two cities that this city has lived yes. uh, by for far too long. And so you talk about yep. the headwinds, right? Yes. Um, housing policy is education policy. Transportation policy is education absolutely. policy and vice versa. Um, we are beginning to see a decline in enrollment mm -hmm. in Dallas ISD yes. um, because of mm -hmm. 
gentrification right. uh, because of the rise of things like charter schools, which have been a, a competition to Dallas yes. ISD. Right. Um, for better or for worse. Yes, another conversation. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, as we see a decline in enrollment in our public school system, we need to identify ways, number one, to be able to retain that enrollment, but yes. also to attract those mm -hmm. who are choosing to move back in and have children, but for whatever reason are not choosing Dallas ISD. Because if we if we don't attract people and, and grow, what's happening, of course, partly because of the charters, but partly because of our broken uh, state funding system is now for the first time Dallas is going to have to send money off to other districts because uh, it, 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 it's just the way things are structured and uh, with with the state contributing less and less our our property taxes more and more there's enormous pressure so I I have some personal ambitions for all of this and yeah. work with Pastors for Texas Children to this effect and uh, we have a new program uh, that, that we're working on uh, matching uh, churches and schools uh, in the community, uh, one plus one. And, and so there, there are hosts of these kind of programs, but if we could get state funding for pre-K, if we could fix this, the state funding system and increase the state's contribution, then these urban districts that are under so much pressure will have a chance to fly again. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's crucial that it happen. And so to define the biggest challenge mm -hmm. that currently impedes the progress of Dallas ISD, the ability for us to be able to exponentially grow the things that we know and have demonstrated are working, mm -hmm. the biggest challenge is funding. Yes. Um, and that sounds sort of like, uh, you know, um, a generic uh, answer, but that that is Honestly, the truth, we need yeah. to have a school finance system that allows for, at the very least, innovative districts, large urban districts like Dallas ISD that are proving what can work yes. to be able to fund those things to scale. Mm -hmm. um, and, and unfortunately, and for far too long, we have not been able to do that. And the politics that have gone on in Austin now, the political games that have gone on, um, at this point, just to be very blunt, it's shameful mm -hmm. um, and too many kids, we're, we're gonna lose another generation right. of children who would have had the opportunity to be successful right. were it not for decision makers in Austin. Well, this program is called Good God and I think as we wrap up this conversation, um, it, it's important for us to remember that every child is a child of God and uh, deserves the uh, privilege of being able to know that and to flourish and to have an opportunity to achieve uh, the call of God that uh, is upon each child's life. Thank you, Miguel, for your service and for your willingness to work in all the ways you do to help make that more possible. Well, thank you for the conversation today and I appreciate all your kind words. Terrific, God bless you. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. 
Children's Medical Center's mission is to make life better for children. Here are some of their heroes. They had their lives saved by children's and then helped others by giving back. There are so many more, and you can help them by supporting the fundraising efforts of Children's Medical Center Foundation. Just go to children's.com and click on I Choose Children's. Be a hero yourself.